0: Uh, we grow up with uh, movies and uh, you know and books and uh, that highlight just the dangers of technology. You know, from the uh, Matrix, Terminator, and 2001: uh, Space Odyssey, or Blade Runner, or whatever it is. And uh, those kind of uh, stories do inform um, how we think about technology moving forward. And especially today that we almost seem to be living in a sci-fi movie in a way where every day we read a newspaper and we're just thinking,
1: wow, I could never have thought this would happen. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney. And in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. From the earliest moments of life, humans are predisposed to recognize potential threats. Take infants, for example. While they may not have an innate fear of snakes, research suggests that they are primed to detect snakes more quickly than other objects in their environment. This predisposition enables them to quickly learn to associate snakes with fear as they grow and gain experience. So what about artificial intelligence? Are we similarly predisposed to fear or embrace this rapidly evolving technology? Joining us today is Stefano Pantoni, a professor of marketing at the Wharton School. In this episode, we'll unravel these questions and delve into the genuine concerns and emotions that AI stirs up. We'll discuss the influence of popular culture on our views of technology, how AI is revolutionizing the way we think about ourselves, and the potential impact of automation on our skills and the labor market. So let's dive into today's episode of The Ripple Effect with Stefano Pantoni. You've done a lot of conversations and and papers on this topic. What was it that kind of drew your attention uh, to this area of of consumer behavior? I've been doing
0: work on consumer decision-making for uh, over two decades now. And I've been fascinated by the topic of consumer behavior because it's such a big part of uh, what we do every day. You know, small decisions like whatever, buying a coffee or toothpaste, but also big decisions like, you know, Buying a house or, a, or or a car, and I think it has a big role to, you know, to to play in our well-being, in the way we live our lives. It Reflects a lot of things about who we are and what we want to be. And so I think understanding consumer behavior is a very interesting, fascinating lens into human psychology. And of course, as a business school professor, there's also a lot of interesting questions to ask that can help, you know, businesses and companies do better.
1: And so now we're in getting in more and more to this intersection of consumer behavior and how AI is playing a role. How has that kind of framed your uh, your look at, at at where we stand right now? You know, I
0: didn't do any work related to AI or technology up to about 10 years ago. Actually, my first half of my career was on completely different topics. And then I just got interested in this because I started reading about what AI was becoming able to do, you know, going back about 2014, where the first crazy things started appearing, like, you know, uh, a, a agent that can understand your speech or a self-driving car. And I just, uh, you know, I have originally a background in statistics, and I just got curious to know how these neural networks were now going to suddenly be able to do these things. And so it became an interest, and then it became a worry, because then I started uh, looking more into it and realized just how how powerful this technology was going to be. And, uh, you know, we're still in early days, actually. You know? And uh, um, the co- implication this would have for my own children, I was thinking about what kind of education they need. At that time, I was also the academic director of a big program at, uh, you know, the university I used to work. And I was thinking okay, what do we need to teach these kids? You know, it's not just that they would have a job next year, but they would have a job 10 years from now. And so that became uh, became an area of concern, became closer to my professional interest. At that point, then, I thought, you know, nobody's studying this in research. We don't know much about how people perceive AI, how AI makes them feel, and uh, what are the barriers to adoption and what kind of concerns people have with it. And so I basically you know, started developing this new line of research and it's been keeping me busy.
1: I would think that, and you mentioned that for some people, uh, it's somewhat of a polarizing topic when you're thinking about how AI is having an impact. But then again, as you just kind of alluded to, the hope is that for younger generations specifically, that this is going to become just kind of a normal part of the process of life as we move forward, Correct. Yeah,
0: and, uh, you know, this is the kind of topic where it leaves no one indifferent. I mean, you, you I, I never speak to anyone who says, I, I don't know, it's not interesting, it's not relevant, it's not important. Everybody recognizes this is a momentous change, I would argue a historical uh, change, and uh, that it will have implications for all kinds of stuff in life, uh, from, you know, our ability to have an included society, to our ability to sustain democratic processes, and then on the positive, incredible potential of improving welfare, well-being, and the economy. So um, I think there is another element to it, which is really informed by popular culture. Uh, we grow up with the... Uh, movies and uh, you know and books and uh, that highlight just the dangers of technology you know from the uh, matrix terminator and uh, 2001 space odyssey or blade runner or whatever it is and uh, those kind of uh, stories do inform um, how we think about technology moving forward. And especially today that we almost seem to be living in a sci-fi movie in a way, where every day we read a newspaper and we're just thinking, wow, I could never have thought this would happen. And so at that moment of uh, upheaval and change, then I think some of these fears are also bubbling up because of that.
1: So when you think about how our identities are potentially impacted by AI, I would imagine... It's kind of a broad scope of areas that you can think about at this point. Yeah, you can look
0: at a lot of different topics, and I think the general uh, question that you can ask, which I find really interesting, is not just to ask what do people think of AI. You know, a lot of people want to know that, want to know that, and how do we, you know, improve consumer uh, beliefs or acceptance of technology? If you're a tech company, that's obviously an important question. But maybe, maybe more important or more interesting even is to think about how AI changes the way we think about ourselves and uh, uh, and there it's linked to uh, to identity the identity the, our human identity and more specifically also our identity in specific domains for example in consumption or at work you know there are a lot of things that we do in life we don't do them only for instrumental reasons to get a job done you know many of them are like that you know you just want to get a job done but many things we do them partly because that's who we are you know we we uh, uh, we have hobbies, we have passions, we have ways in which we uh, construe our personas to ourselves and to other people, and uh, and those personas are important. And technology and automation can be a threat to those personas as more and more of those activities can be made by done by machines. So, for example, at the workplace, one big barrier to, or let's say, a, a, a potential stumbling block for a lot of tech deployments in organizations is that people feel threatened by it. You know that they may not want to adopt technology because they feel they can do it better, or because they're afraid, and now they're irrelevant, or because they are worried about what's coming next. And so, some resistance is partly due to this, by this uh, perceived threat that people may have sometimes. So, communicating properly about technology is important, and also understanding how this technology might affect people's feelings of identity. So, imagine that I am uh, um, a really passionate um, into cooking, for example. And there are certain things that I do in cooking that I don't want to be replaced by machine. Maybe I'm baking bread, imagine. And I'm okay with using a dough kneading machine that would automate the the physical labor of kneading Mm -hmm. the dough, which is kind of, you know, hard work and boring. Um, But what I don't want is a machine that automates my cognitive skills, my unique abilities to understand what ingredients we need and how you actually bake the bread so i might feel something like a bread baking machine it'd be highly threatening to me Um, and you can think of that in a lot of different activities maybe you can think about it in your own life you know what activities do you like and in which activities do you feel technology helps you and sometimes can hinder you if you are fishing if you are you know a cyclist if you are you know whatever musician it could be a lot of different things
1: is there a concern then to a degree of 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 having that level of automation of kind of a loss of skills at times with human beings, with some of the things that you said that we'd love to do, that potentially we might lose those at some point down the road?
0: Yeah, the vicious risk of the skilling that people have emphasized before. And uh, I was referring more to socio-emotional processes of feeling replaced, which people may find highly aversive, um, even threatening. But uh, indeed, there is this issue also, you know, skills, you use it. You 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 develop them by using them. You know the the typical saying is you know use it or lose it, and that goes also with automation. And we've had some we've seen discussions in some professional contexts, for example, airline pilots or doctors, where if you don't practice certain skills, you may not be able to uh, you know perform a task uh, well, and especially in situations where. You may have a standard mode of operation which is highly automated and where the automation switches off when there is a crisis. That is a moment when you really need a human agent to be on top of things and highly skilled. But if we never get to practice things, we might not be ready when the moment comes that our help, our input is really needed. That goes also for driving a car or imagine you know, an autopilot system will drive you everywhere and then uh, switches off when there is something really difficult on the road. And now you haven't been driven, driving for, you know, weeks <laughs> and you don't know what to do. You know, that's an issue.
1: How does it potentially impact the labor force, do you think? And and even to a degree, the workplace uh, uh, that we may see in the, in the years ahead.
0: There is a lot of discussion now in labor economics and related fields on the impact of automation for the demand for labor and what kind of labor. So, um, this is not my field of expertise, but it's a really interesting topic, both from a policymaking point of view, but uh, also just from a you know, regular person point of view, where you might want to think about uh, what is it that I'm going to do in, a, in, a, in a five, ten years from now. And uh, the um, consensus seems to think that the current wave of automation uh, stands out in the potential to automate a lot of different tasks within organizations we've moved away from physical labor to cognitive labor and this is a big story of the industrial revolution right? so we end up from the factory floor into the office right and now we are being kind of kicked out of the office and it's not clear what other place we can go to so uh, th- those are the fears people have but there's also excitement too there's uh, you know taking for example generative ai is, you know, just a new literature springing up now is trying to understand what the impact of this technology for productivity. And this, some of the early data are just stunning. I mean, you know, enormous increase in productivity. So there's a lot to be also, you know, excited about. My own interest is a bit different from this. My own research is not so much on demand for labor, but more about workers' perception. Of, uh, um, of what it means to deploy more and more technology in the workplace. And uh, just to make a couple of examples, uh, we have a paper came out three years ago where we look at, uh, um, let's say, the psychological correlates of uh, uh, technological unemployment, meaning does it feel different when you're replaced by a machine versus when you're replaced by another person? And what we find is that uh, um, it does feel different. And in fact, it feels better. <laughs> that uh, you perceive um, replacement by a machine as being less threatening generally than replacement by another human worker because you don't tend to compare yourself to uh, an algorithm or a robot and be replaced by another person. Therefore, it's just more threatening because it's not a nice comparison to make. You know, the, the job went to someone else. However, we, in the same paper, we find that these kind of feelings are highly contingent on your uh, temporal focus. If you think about how you feel What's more threatening, what do you prefer now? Then people do find a uh, robotic replacement to be less threatening to your sense of self. But if I ask you a different question, and now I ask you, what do you think about the future, your economic future? Then now the preference switches around and now actually people find robotic replacement more threatening. You know, robotic replacement is a cue for skill obsolescence. You know, we're talking about reskilling and reskilling. So the moment that uh, I get fired and I get replaced by another. A uh, um, marketing professor, let's say, I can go out there and try look for another job like the one that I lost. But if I get replaced by an algorithm uh, that becomes now the professor, well, you know, there's never gonna be another job for me. So th- that's that's basically the, the logic of this temporal switch. In another line of research, this is a new one. We we haven't even published this paper. Uh, what we're looking at is. Um, uh, people's stereotypes about AI and how they can, uh, or beliefs about AI, and how this can spill over to uh, to the people who somehow were connected to the AI. So imagine um, a company relying on AI for uh, employee selection. That's increasingly common nowadays. And what we're finding is that people hold stereotypes about the people that get recruited through AI systems, such that if you're an employee and uh, someone colleague of yours, for example, learns that you were hired through an AI-driven selection process, people tend to hold the belief that you have inferior interpersonal skills. They also hold the belief that you have superior analytical skills. So they kind of reflect the stereotypes that we have uh, about technology onto the people that were selected by technology. And that's probably actually, in in some early data we have, and other data, that doesn't just be the case. Actually, AI can be very good. selecting based on interpersonal skills Uh, but people don't hold that belief
1: does the impact of chat gpt play a role into that thought process of how ai as a replacement can be sometimes less threatening i mean chat gpt i think for a lot of people is believed to be a benefit at least in the early going of the work that it can do not so much as a replacement, but as a, as a support for what somebody is doing in the workplace?
0: I think the ChatGPT and its launch in November has been, uh, um, I think, a uh, very important moment in uh, the um, diffusion of AI technology in society. I mean, this technology of generative AI has been around already for a little while, but before it was confined in relatively narrow uh, you know, corners of society whether that was a tech sector or, or academia or, or some other place like that. And the uh, deployment at scale of a technology like that where in order to now being able to use a generative AI algorithm like uh, ChatGPT, you would only need an email address and a three-minute registration process makes uh, basically adoption possible for everybody. And, uh, you know, people have been so intrigued by this, Is this uh, you know, you know the listeners have heard this already but it's been the, it's a product with the fastest adoption ever recorded it took only 5 days to reach a million users it took less than 8 weeks to to reach a million, 100 million users and, uh, and so basically everybody's trying it and playing with it and the first experience is just amazement you know that uh, an algorithm can do this and i believe i probably speak for many of us that uh, it's not obvious that any of us would would think something like that we would be able to see in our own lifetimes, and it's happening so fast. So uh, um, yeah, th- this is excitement around it. And of course, most people that make an account for Jack gpt what do they do with it? Silly things, you know. They, you want to write, I don't know. You, you ask him to write your own bio just to see what he does, or. You ask it to write a rap song about uh, I don't know Shakespeare <laughs> some kind of silly thing, a gimmicky thing. But it's very easy to understand just how pervasive the impact of this technology can be in a lot of different jobs. I mean, you can think about your own job. What do you do in a day? And how many of the things that you do in a day could be done at a reasonable level by technology like this with fairly limited prompting. And so, of course, it's not as good as a lot of the stuff that we do but it's good enough for a lot of users. And maybe in some contexts it's actually as good or maybe even better than what we can do ourselves.
1: Well, let me, let me ask you then also in, in your realm of the marketing world of how AI you think will be continued to play a role moving forward in terms of its connection with the consumer and what the consumer will be expecting back from companies who are obviously using this technology.
0: Yeah, definitely. Consumer expectations are going up very quickly. So now, for example, think about chatbots. Your expectation about a chatbot was going to be able to do has gone up a lot in the last year or two. And maybe from expecting a very rudimentary and probably you know unsuccessful kind of interaction, you probably now have a expectation of interaction can be pretty smooth and probably effective. So I think that means that companies cannot rest on their laurels. That they keep improving. They need to deploy. Technology for the benefit of customers, and when they don't do that, they'll likely be left behind. Um, but there are also issues around AI safety, for example. I know it's that uh, the technology gets deployed at scale in society, and as more and more people are interacting with it, there are also situations where we can see dangers for consumers. And for example, you know we, there are a lot already media stories about people falling in love with AI, or you know leaving the, the husband because AI advised them too. And there was this famous story in the New York Times about uh, uh, being AI a couple of months ago, where you know the uh, journalist was at, was uh, begged to to leave the uh, the wife or for for child of being AI. And uh, um, so clearly, this is potentially an issue, especially if you have consumers potentially with mental health issues who interact with technology, you could easily see how this can become problematic. The thing to understand here is that these algorithms are are machine learning algorithms that make predictions and respond in context. You cannot know beforehand what they're going to say. So if a consumer, for example, expresses a wish to end their own life, it's not clear that uh, this algorithm would say anything helpful or, or safe. And uh, the the person who coded this technology also cannot know. It's not like a scripted where, you know, someone with clinical understanding of that circumstance will be able to, uh, you know, embed safe instructions in the uh, in the system. The system does, what the system does, and uh, and might not be what we needed to do. So there the, the are issues around AI safety. Clearly, we're going to see a lot of actions also on the regulation side. Um, but I think it's. Um, you know, exciting and also scary at the same time.
1: Yeah, so is it kind of important then to kind of frame the use uh, of AI as complementary to what we already have in society instead of relying upon it as kind of the the next step in how to do everything in in our lives?
0: Yeah, I agree, Dan. I think you make a good point. And I think too much of the discussion around AI over the last few years has been of the kind I call human or AI, human or machine, meaning we've been thinking about how we can take the human out of the equation. Take, for example, self-driving car. The way that the algorithm has been working is that uh, you have a human driver driving on the road with an algorithm recording everything that's happening, and then the algorithm would learn what to do when a particular set of parameters face the algorithm. So now in this situation, what would a human do? Copying the human. This is basically how a lot of this uh, machine learning algorithm work. But I think we need to change gear now, and I think we need to go into the mindset I call human and machine, not just understand how we can mimic a human decision process so we can maybe do it instead of the human, but focus more on how do we leverage the unique capabilities of algorithms and of humans, which are different and complementary in order to improve business processes. So it's not about... You know, replacing the, the human, I think is making the human more effective, more inspiring, more productive.
1: Thank you for listening to the Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.